I couldn't breathe. It was such a painful thing. I felt maybe 10 feet on my side, and I heard a crack, and my uh, crack my rib. And all the guys drowned, uh, they rushed. I'm Shada Omidvar, and this is The Hopeful, episode six, our season finale, Home. I sat trying to catch my breath, and the owner rushed as well. They all picked me up, put them aside, and the owner said, you got to go home. I said, no, no, no. He said, no, you got to go home. You're tired. You got hurt. Go home. My dad is seriously injured while working picking cherries. When he gets home, he takes some painkillers, goes to sleep, wakes up, and goes straight to work the next day. My dad never gave up. What other choice did he have? As a migrant worker, he didn't get sick days. He didn't even have health care. All he could do was keep going to work. All my chest was wrapped with a sheet of cloth. And the owner said, what are you doing here? I said, no, I need money. I need to pick cherries. I need the money. So all day, I couldn't raise my right hand. I did my left hand picking cherries. That day, I only could maybe feel maybe two. Again, the pain lasted for a week or so. So by then, the cherry season was almost over. We were a month, month and a half into the cherry picking was over. Cherry season had ended and apple season had begun, which my dad found out was way more lucrative. The boxes filled up quicker and he got paid $10 per box. My dad would be satisfied if he could fill three boxes a day. He's now halfway into his first year living in Canada. No, I'm into the six months my staying in Vernon, working getting comfortable, learning the language, because I didn't speak to anyone other than Siavash time to time. But my English was progressing quite fast. I was getting more comfortable, but I was getting, I was very lonely. I can imagine I'd find it really hard to move to a small town, let alone being an immigrant still learning the language. Today, Vernon has a population of about 40,000 people. Only 50 of them are West Asian. In 1980, the population of Vernon was less than half of that, not exactly the prime place for a single 23-year-old immigrant who comes from a big city of 5 million people. When the population of a town is so small, any change or new person is very noticeable. And it's not like there's a fear behind it, but it's almost like a spotlight that I think could make integration super challenging. I can't imagine it was easy for my dad to fit in, but that's not to say he didn't try. They offer free movie, for example. Long weekends, we had a long weekend, they would offer free movie for three days. I remember I didn't get out of the house for three days. All I did watch movie for 20, uh, 24 hours a day because there was nothing else in Vernon that could offer. And loneliness was getting getting to me. Uh, going to a nightclub, no one even would, was even trying to approach someone to talk to. As soon as I hear my accent or I'm having a hard time speaking English, no one even tried or nobody even made the effort. My dad was clearly unhappy in Vernon, but as usual, he pushed on. He had been there for more than half a year and the feeling of isolation had begun to wear him down. After apple season was over, he decided to go to Vancouver. After all, he fell in love with Vancouver the moment he arrived on that bus ride from Montreal. Remember that dream he had before he left Iran? So I went to sleep that night and I dreamt. It's the forest, thick, thick forest. It was nothing but greenery. 
Vancouver would be his destiny. So I always had my heart set on coming back to Vancouver. Then I went, got all my pots and pans on my blanket, whatever I saved over six months or so in Vernon. I put them back up at my car in Honda. I came, I never looked back. And I came to Vancouver. I didn't know where to go, where to start. Where would I, I didn't even know at that time people advertising in a newspaper or for a room or, uh, or anything. So I was just looking for a miracle. The Broadway is the longest street in Vancouver. I remember I was just going up and down in Vancouver to kill some time. And first night I slept in the car uh, in one of the shopping center. And at midnight, security guard came, said, woke me up. He said, you cannot sleep here. So I would move, park on the side of the street or anywhere. I slept in the car. Second night, I slept in the car. Third day, I slept in the car. Again, killing time. Fourth day, I was totally lost. I was totally devastated. I mean, just in terms of, again, felt so lonely. Don't know to where to start, where to turn to. I remember I, I went to English Bay, sat down on a rock, and I plead with God. I said, you know, that's enough. I guess I have, as a human being, I have a limit. I need to show me the direction. I can't do this anymore. I mean, I don't know where to start, where to go. I mean, I need I need some direction. I sat on a rock, look into the ocean, and I, I begged them to show me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally lost. With only a few hundred dollars in his pocket, my dad was afraid to spend it on something like a hotel for his first few nights in Vancouver. He would wander around downtown, getting a sense for the city, hoping for some sign to point him in the right direction to get him settled into his new life. So from English Bay, there was a McDonald's. I went there to have lunch in McDonald's. While I was sitting there, some Arab or Persian-looking guy walked in. And I thought, wow, he's... It looks like Persian. Maybe you can ask him some question or whatever. I got up. I said, are you Iranian? He said, no, I'm Arab. What do you need? I said, oh, I just came to town. I don't know what to do, where to go, whatever. He said, sit down. I'll call somebody for you. This kind stranger calls up an Iranian friend whose name is also Amir. Amir was just 16 at the time, but spoke fluent English and Farsi. My dad explained his situation and Amir was happy to help him out. In the meantime, the Arab man offered my dad a place to stay and clean up. He said, oh, I know I'll help you out to find a place to stay. And then that Arab guy said, you stay with me for tonight. Take shower, get changed, whatever. So he took me to his house. I slept on the couch. I took a shower, cleaned up. The next day, Amir came over. I drove with my car. He opened up the paper. He uh, looked for it. Obviously, they know section, the classified section. He knew he knew where to look. He found a place, a room for $200 a month. He said, that's good. I said, yeah, let's go. Amir calls the number in the ad and schedules a viewing that same day. So both Amirs head over there together. My dad is actually still friends with Amir. I remember going to his wedding when I was 9 or 10. He now lives in Colorado with his wife and three kids. So we went there. It was Willingdon on Kingsway. The older lady, Louise. And we sat down, talked to her. She said, I was looking for a female. But okay, I'll uh, I'll take him. And when would you want to move in? 
I said, how about now? She said, now? I said, yes. I have no other place to go. So I came in. I moved in with her. I opened up my, take up my old second-hand, third-hand pots and pans. She said, no, 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 don't touch any of those. Just leave it in the box, put it in storage. You can use my, all the dishes, all the cutlery, whatever. My dad moves into his first apartment in Vancouver with an 80-year-old retired woman named Louise. At first, she'd be just a roommate and then would become his teacher. For a year and a half, I lived with Louise. And she taught me everything. Everything was possible. She talked to me how to behave, how to speak, how the time, everything's possible about the culture. Louise taught me how to live uh, in Canada, or Canadian way, rather. Louise gave my dad such an incredible gift by teaching him not only language, but culture. It was almost like she helped him to assimilate, but not in a way that wiped away who he is and where he comes from, but it helped him to adapt to his new environment. Sometimes in life, you find the people that you need, even when you're so different. Who would have thought a young Iranian refugee and an older Canadian woman with nothing in common on the surface would become so close? And she told me how to go apply for a job. She helped me to uh, make a phone calls, uh, look for a, uh, you know, advertising on a newspaper, look for a job. I applied for uh, so many places. My dad would apply for mechanic positions at any mechanic shop he heard of accepting applications. Unlike today with emailing and online application forms, my dad would have to go in person, door to door. So many places. One place I never forget. The guy says, what are you doing here? Go back home. You don't belong here. And then I came home again with a long face. What happened? Louis asked, would ask, what happened? I said, I went, but when somebody uh, chased me away from their, their shop, they told me to go back home. So she said, no, don't, don't listen to those. She encouraged me again. Don't get up tomorrow. Go for, look for another job. This story crushes me. I know there are so many moments throughout his journey that my dad felt pain, but this one feels personal. It's so small, but if my dad didn't have Louise to come home to, to encourage him to believe in himself, then I wonder if he would have ever tried again, if he would have ever had the motivation to keep trying. Looking for a job is a strenuous feat, even for Canadians, even for those who are educated. I've been there, sending out hundreds of emails with very few replies, it beats you down. To think of how the experience of a job search must be different and worse for an immigrant and someone still learning English, I can imagine it would feel impossible to get a foot in the door. I know for certain this is as relevant today as it was in 1985. I've heard so many times about how immigrants or first-generation people of color change their name on job applications and resumes because it's proven they'll receive a higher number of callbacks when their name is more Western. The next day, my dad tries again at another shop, this time at a Mohawk gas station that had a mechanic shop attached to it. There was a Mohawk gas station on Kingsway. Uh, the application, you know, resume, I didn't know what the resume is. And the guy gave me an application to fill up work reference or phone number. I had a hard time fill up the application because I didn't know how to fill up the application. So I put it and I came back home. And then Luis always told me, just go to follow up, follow up, see what's happening. A few days later, I went, at, uh, went to see, see what happened. It was a shop foreman. I went, he said, no, 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 I have no job. Go. 
at the same time, I saw the new face. Uh, in the corner of my eyes, I saw the new face. This new face would soon become a friend to my dad. His name is Marwood Cole. And he had a, um, what do you, when you go for a... Resume? Well, not really a resume. He just had a paper. We wrote on that I can do this and that and that. I had a chance to speak with Marwood and his wife, Amy, in their home when my producer Claire and I traveled to Vancouver to interview my dad. They're both immigrants themselves, having come from Cape Town, South Africa in 1980. When I came back, they said, oh, there was a guy in here you should see. Just have a look at this uh, thing. But they crumpled up the paper already and threw it away. There's no chance of giving him a job. And... uh, I didn't see the paper myself, but then I thought if he's new in the country, he would need help. Then I went to Peter, which was the owner of the place, and I said, look, you've got to give this guy a chance. Peter, the Mohawk station owner, listened to Marwood. He said, when can you start? I said, tomorrow. Tomorrow? I said, yeah. I have uh, no other job. Uh, I need a job. I can't start tomorrow. He said, how much do you expect? I said, I don't know, whatever. How about we start you at $11.50 an hour? My mouth just dropped. I was shocked. I was just, I couldn't believe it. I tried to contain my excitement. I couldn't. I said, sure, sure, no problem, no problem. I couldn't, uh, you know, just... I was so ex- uh, excited and happy from $3 to $11 an hour. It was amazing. I was so happy. I didn't know how to celebrate my happiness for the first time. I got a drop, $11 an hour. That was a lot of money back in 85. My dad didn't know this at the time, but he needed his own set of tools for the new job. Luckily, Marwood would arrive prepared the next day. Here's Amy. Being that we were immigrants ourselves, we could understand that there's an adaptation period. And Mar would obviously recognize that. Because the day he came home, he says, i got to get a toolbox ready for this guy. He's coming to work there. He's got no tools. So he put together a box of tools for him. My dad settled into life in Vancouver and was finally making a livable wage. I was getting decent paycheck. I was getting comfortable. I was eating properly, do the grocery with the confidence. Marwood was a turning point for me in my life. He helped quite a bit. He helped me to get my first job. If it wasn't for Marwood, who knows what would have happened. During my dad's six months at Mohawk, he screwed up a lot, and Marwood had to cover for him every time. It wasn't that he didn't know what he was doing, but there was the hurdle of the language barrier that he couldn't yet get over. Even simple tasks like an oil change or a brake test were getting lost in translation. Just thinking of how people sometimes treated him at the shop, workers, and it was only because he couldn't make them understand. He spoke English, but there was still a communication problem in the beginning. I had to cover up a lot for him. (laughs) I had two jobs to do. Not that he didn't know what he was doing, is that he didn't know what they wanted him to do. So. You said that you you helped my dad adapt to the workshop. What was it that you were saying again? How you helped him? 
with the teaching him some swear words. Yes, I had to. <laughs> so people would stop hugging him? Yes. He could, you know, I'm not going to say what I told him, but he could handle himself then, you know. It was good. And I also taught him, you, if you go into a, into a place and you could sense, hey, these people are not going to be polite or nice. I says, you don't have to be nice either. I says, you just go and state your case, say what you want, and that's it. They either like it or that's it. Even with Marwood by his side, life at the shop as the new guy wasn't easy. The workers and even the shop foreman gave him a really hard time. It was treated me very bad. It was just like a, to the point of I felt like he was abusing me, you know, mentally. It was cursing and it was shouting. It was treating me bad. It was always giving me a dirty, uh, long face, dirty face. So it was very stressful working there. Even though Marwood was side by side, Marwood was trying to balance it out. Keep telling me, don't, don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's just full of air and all that. But I could not leave uh, work like that because it put me so much pressure under me. And then as a result, I would make a mistake. I would break things. When we started writing this podcast, this part of my dad's story was something I wanted to make sure we talked about. The struggle that continues for a refugee after arriving in their new home. My dad had to learn English not just for the day-to-day conversation, but the technical jargon he needed as a mechanic. He couldn't afford to take any courses at the time, so having Marwood and Louise help him made this a little bit easier. Having support from two at-first strangers had an incredible impact. What if they never met? What if Marwood didn't have a shift that day my dad showed up at the shop? And they understood me. And Marwood said that. He said, I knew exactly how he feel. Because I went through the same thing here. I had a hard time when I came in. No one would give me a chance. No one would understand me. But I knew how he feel. Don't listen to other side noise. This country is the greatest country on earth. And, and, and Marwood has been on my side for the last 35 years. As a mentor, as a friend, as a father figure has been around with me for the last 35 years. And I never will forget their love and what, what they did for me. Today, my dad calls Marwood almost every day for advice, to help him troubleshoot a car problem, or just to check in about life. They may not see each other more than a few times a year, but no matter where my dad is in the world, traveling with my mom, they are never further than a phone call away. In six months, I got a better job offer from another company. I went, I worked, and then again, I got more, more money from $11. I went to $17, $18 an hour job. I start, uh, got more, a year went by, two years went by, and I got laid off uh, from the job. And somebody said, why don't you go to school? get your certificate. I said, they said, if you go to vocational school here, you have a better chance. If you get licensed, you get, you make more money. My dad found out that the Vancouver Community College had a mechanic certification program. He was feeling a bit more financially comfortable and that he could afford to take some courses, both to improve his English and get himself all the proper certifications to be a mechanic. I forget it. I went to the counter. There's about seven, eight ladies uh, behind the administration. And then I uh, went there and I said, I want to apply for a mechanic course. 
And then they said, okay, wait, uh, this, this lady is in charge of a mechanic course. And uh, here comes Zinat with her uh, curly hair and all that. She walks in and I thought, oh my God, she looks so nice <laughs> with her curly hair. This beautiful curly haired woman is my mom, Zinat. My dad would find any excuse to go see her in the admissions office. And whenever he came to the counter, he never asked for anybody else but me. And even everybody in the office knew that he's not going to talk to anybody else. And as soon as I approached the counter, everybody says, Zinette is your customer. And she would walk in. What do you want now? Yeah, he was, um, throughout his course, uh, he was asking me to go and have coffee with him. She said, no, I don't date student. I don't date student. He was always coming to the registration counter with his motorcycle helmet and his leather gloves. And he gave me the impression of a a tough guy or, you know. I was riding a motorcycle back then. So every time I went with my helmet and my gloves, and she was saying, oh my God, who who wants to go out with this guy? (laughs) Poor person who will go out with this guy. So a year went by, I graduated. I asked your mother, would you go out camping with me? It's a long weekend coming up. Then he just said, uh, look, I'm not a student any longer and you have no reason to um, uh, tell me that you can't go out with me. And um, would you like to uh, go for a camping trip? She says, okay. <laughs> I was quite shocked. He was so taken back and then he was like, really? And then I said, yeah, I'll go along with you. But after he left, I thought about it all afternoon, and I said, uh, oh, my God, what have I done? So went home, and then it was like 7, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night. She called me. I was caught my surprise. I said, wow, where did you get my number from? She said, I have your file. I know, <laughs> I know where you live. I know your file. So she says, no. And I know I cannot come. I admit, I admit it. I rushed to the judgment to come in. And then, uh, no, I, I think, no, I, it is not the right thing to do. I hardly know you. And then plus my daughter and all that. So and I keep insisting, pers- trying to pursue her to change her mind to come. We talked until three o'clock in the morning, from eight o'clock at night until three o'clock in the morning. Finally, she now you can see it till now, she still likes to talk on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> what did you talk about? From everywhere and anything. I can honestly, we just talked and talked and then talked, trying to brainwash her to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, and I said, okay, fine, I'll go with one condition. She said, I have to talk to my daughter. Uh, that's a fair for someone to ask uh, for the daughter's opinion, whatever. I thought, fine, I understand. And if she wa- she felt comfortable with him, and if she said, okay, then I would get along with, I would go along with that. And then she said to me, yeah, okay, uh, I like this guy. We'll go. I, I don't mind going. And then he also agreed to be a gentleman throughout the, the whole period. So then uh, we decided to go. Before we get to the rest of their life together, my dad had a really important immigration interview coming up. My three years was up for interview with immigration to whether they grant me a landed immigrant or not. This one will determine whether they will grant me a stay or they send me back. They send a lot of people back. Went for my interview, 
three gentlemen were sitting and then they asked head of the thing, do I need translator? I said, no, I don't need translator. So we went inside, three gentlemen were sitting, they asked questions, same thing again, the reason for a living uh, left Iran. The whole interview took maybe two, three hours. And throughout the interview, what sticks to mind, I can never forget. And they said, how did you learn English? You speak in, in such a short time, you speak in English so comfortably. I said, by watching TV, reading a newspaper, self-thought. And how many times did you ask for social assistance? I said, none. Why not? Physically, there was nothing wrong with me. I picked apple. I picked cherries. I did a wash cars. Whatever is necessary. But I wasn't, I didn't see myself entitled to get the money. But you could have. I said, I know. But I didn't. End of three hours, they said, can you stand, uh, sit outside? I went out, sit outside. About 10 minutes or so, I got called back in. They had a file in front of them. Open up the landed immigrant. They said, welcome to Canada. And one of the gentlemen got up, shook my hand, said, I never forget this. He said, welcome to Canada. And we are very happy and proud to have you as a new landed immigrant. That was a, such a rewarding thing for me. And I was so happy and I was so proud. And I came home and I phoned Iran. I said, I got my landed immigrant because over three years, I was in limbo. Again, I wasn't too sure they're going to give me that paper or not or what. Again, it was nothing guaranteed. But I never took a day for granted. The other countries, they put me in jail. They made me hungry. They beat me. But this country opened the door. I said, I am not going to betray the trust. I am not going to backstab him. I'm going to stay good and be a good citizen and a role model citizen for myself and have an impression for other people. It goes without saying that my dad's suffering, hard work, and perseverance has started to pay off. He was finally building up his life, not only financially, but he started a community around him. He had a sense of security and freedom of mobility. He wasn't just trying to make it to the next day anymore. Probably the biggest gift come from his new permanent residency status was that he could then apply for a visa for his mother to come and visit. It had been seven years since my dad last saw his mother. Without a goodbye, he left her and the family behind. And finally, he could prove to her that he made it all worth it. Seven years later, and then I never forget a day. We were in the airport, Marward and his family came, Reza came. And then now they knew how much my mother meant to me. So they're standing in the crowds of you know, hundreds and hundreds of people waiting uh, for my mother to clear the immigration to come out. And I'm standing there by the door, by the exit door, and I see the uh, flight attendant is coming, coming from a far distance, coming closer, closer, closer. And then there was one of those uh, barrier uh, uh, barricade uh, in the passenger side uh, for the passenger arrival. She goes, comes around, turns around, comes, and I, I'm following her, and she's eye contacting me at the same time. And it comes, she said, she comes to me, she says to me, are you Amir Omidwar? I said, yes. She said, I want you to come in to translate for your mother. I said, what? I was so surprised. I said, how did you recognize me? 
She says, you look like your mother. <laughs> so I went to the immigration. My mother's on the other side, and I'm on this side with the immigration officer. And my mother's hand goes on, a, on top of the counter, and I'm touching my mother's hand. Now I can barely control myself. I'm sobbing on this side, and my mother's sobbing on the other side. And because this is the first time, six or seven years, I see my mother. And then the officer keeps saying, I'm here, calm down. I'm only going to be a couple of more minutes. Just uh, just compose yourself. Just calm down. I said, I'm so sorry. I can't. So she's crying on the other end. I'm crying on my other end. So the officers uh, process, ask a few more questions, you know, and all that. Then uh, she comes out in the, in a waiting area. And I put my head around on her on her shoulder, cried, cried, cried. She cried. Marvel's family cried. Reza cried. Everyone <laughs> During my grandmother's stay, she eventually met my mom, who my dad said was just a friend. But Mama Chun was wiser than that. After she returned back to Iran, my dad got a call from his brother Hossein. He asked my dad about his woman friend in a tone that made it obvious he knew she was more than that. Emma Hossein told my dad that Mama Jun wouldn't stop talking about how much she liked Zanette. When Mama Jun got onto a topic she was excited about, there was no stopping her. So I can imagine my uncle's phone call was driven by motivation to get Mama June to change the subject. With his family's seal of approval, my dad asked my mother to marry him. They were married on July 1st, 1989. They planned a backyard wedding at my uncle Durson's house, my mom's younger brother, with a big lamb on a spit over a big barbecue. It rained the whole time. They would celebrate the day crammed inside with 50 of their closest friends and family. A few seasons later, they'd be expecting their first child together. On New Year's Eve that year, my parents hosted their first party with guests in every corner of the house. My mom loved to dance. She was and is always the first and last person on the dance floor. This time would be an exception because before they could ring in the new year, her water broke. I was born almost 24 hours later at 11.05 p.m. on New Year's Day. Remember my dad's girlfriend from Iran who he almost married? She was still in his thoughts, even when he finally got to Canada and even when he married my mom. Maybe because she was a symbol of why he left Iran. I would get up in the morning just to clear my conscience. I would tell Zina, by the way, I had a dream about her last night. And she would patiently listen to my dream and shake her head, walk away. She had no said, well, it is what it is, what can I do? Until you came. When you came, I stopped dreaming about her. It was absolutely beautiful. I started, I had my own family now, my own family. I can have, be a father, I was a father. From that moment on, our life turned for better and better and better. My dad's journey had reached its destination, but it wouldn't be the end of his story. After I was born, my dad said he felt determined in a new way. Now it was about excelling in life, not just about making ends meet. After four years, my parents were expecting their second child, my sister Ida. And at the same time, my dad would be fulfilling his goal of opening up his own mechanic shop. But in terms of you coming to my life, you give me a key or even motivation more than ever. But when Ida came in, Ida came and then our whole flowers blossomed because now my ambitions doubled. And Ida brought me even more luck 
to open up the shop and then to even excel more now because I had more reason to fight or to work harder to make provide better life for you guys because every time I looked at you guys, I even was happier more, more than I think because both of you brought the joy and enjoyment in life for myself. I don't even know where to begin to summarize for you how far my parents have come since then. They operated their business for 12 years with my mom in the office and my dad in the shop. Marwood would work with my dad for almost eight of those years until he retired. Throughout that time, they started to purchase homes that they would flip and turn into rentals. My dad would work at the shop during the day and go do some renos at a new house in the evenings, but he never missed dinner with my mom and sisters. My parents were able to retire in 2012 after Ida went off to university. Today, they split their time between Turkey, Vancouver, Kelowna, and Mexico, but they are never farther than a phone call away. To your mother's credit, I owe everything. I don't say it, I don't tell her, but she was a backbone where I am today. I was ambitious, but without her support, I mean, obviously, she gave me a wonderful kids, but she supported me throughout the years. And then, and for that, I'm truly thankful for who she is. What does our name Omidvar mean in English? Omidvar means hopeful. And what does that mean to you? Everything. It means I never give up. It means you always have hope. Without the hope, we don't exist. I'm Shada Omidvar, and The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network, written and created by myself and Portia Larley, It's produced by Claire Brassard, sound mixing by Ryan Clark. Our original theme song, the one you're hearing right now, is by Ench. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Thank you to Marwood and Amy Cole and my mother, Zanette Omidvar, for being in this episode. And now, a few words from my dad. I would like to take a moment to thank a few people, especially my family, my brothers and sisters for their love and their support throughout the years. And from bottom of my heart, I would like to thank all the people I mentioned in my life story for their help to make where I am today possible. We'd like to give an extended thank you to everyone who helped make the hopeful happen. Milenko Vujosevic, Deepak Bidwai, Yuri Yashilchiman, Makers, Susan Bartlett-Larley, Michael Lee Murphy, Peter Larley, Anna Pringle, Melanie Crustall, and Dave Dalibelte, and the team at Frequency Podcast Network, including Jordan Heath Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, Stephanie Phillips, Jennifer Gay, and Amal Delich. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to The Hopeful. This is the end of season one, but it's not goodbye. We'll keep this feed alive with some bonus content, so make sure to stay subscribed. We'd also love to stay in touch. Follow us on Instagram at The Hopeful Podcast. Lastly, I want to note that while the trajectory of my dad's story is exceptional, many migrants' stories don't end up this way. 
My dad struggled and worked extremely hard and he lives a comfortable life now. But for so many migrants in Canada, their struggle continues. Canada could make a number of changes to improve the lives of migrants here. We encourage you to support migrant-led groups that are advocating for change. Visiting migrantrights.ca is a great place to start. I'm Shada Omidvar, Tabarna Mayabad, Be Omida Didar. <laughs>